Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his public ministry. He's walking by the seashore and uh, he's encountering some fishermen. And he uh, bids them to follow them, follow him. Before we get to that, I want to introduce a word here, fallow, fallow ground. What is fallow ground? Fallow ground is uh, usually farmland that's been plowed and uh, harrowed, which means distress. It's a plowed, distressed field uh, for which uh, it has remained unsown with seed. It's in a season of rest, um, seedlessness, fruitlessness, but it is also distressed and it's left on its own. Uh, it's not yet fertile again and uh, it will be one day. Now I say all that to say uh, it is certainly possible, maybe even likely, that someone hearing this message, both either here or after the fact or whenever, that if you really looked at it, you could say, you know what, I'm right now, if I'm honest about it, I'm kind of fallow ground. I'm in a season of whatever is going on or isn't going on, and I don't feel like I'm bearing fruit. I just kind of feel, some of, some of us may even feel a little bit left alone, some of us distressed. Um, we know something's ahead for us. It's not exactly right now. We're just sort of in this parenthetical pause, trying to figure out what's next. And that fallowness is sometimes, not all the time, sometimes it's a very beneficial, restful period of time. Other times it's almost self-facilitated. And the fallowness is, um, is uh, if we have to be honest about it, it's a result of a lack of follow following. The fallow is the absence of follow. To follow Christ, what, what does that actually mean? And what does it mean in the context in which he bids these fishermen to, to come with him? And, and, and it's, it's okay today that we look at this idea, if, if areas of my life or my total life or my spiritual walk right now is a bit fallow, a bit left alone, bit, like maybe even fruitless, um, I'm willing to look at it because I want to follow. All right, we'll talk about that in their context, and then we'll talk about that maybe in our own context. So how's your spiritual soil is what I'm saying. Maybe that seed has not really taken root like it has in the past. Fair enough. Maybe the fallow means we need to follow. As Jesus was walking by the seaside of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother, Andrew. These are not words you've not heard before. These are words you've heard many times. In fact, you're going to hear much of the scripture that I read to you today is stuff you've heard so many times, it's gotten to the point where it's potentially dangerous. This autonomic uh, predictability of hearing things you've heard so many times can at times be problematic because the living word is received not as though it's alivened again, yet again for us, it's sometimes we perceive it to be an old and repetitive word, when in reality it's not. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said. Well, how would we have received that? What do you, what do, you do with that? It's so brief. 
It's not some elongated, uh, highly detailed narrative about what he meant by what he said and how did he say it, what was intonation, what was his inflection, what was his volume, was he a pleading? It's not really a command, it's not a strong command, but then again, it's not a question either. It's just come follow me. I mean, how did he say it? I'd like, I need more specifics actually. What do I do with that? Because if I'm raising a family, if I'm a leader in the community, if I'm a, a real estate agent, a contractor, if I'm a plumber, if I'm a, an executive, if I'm a professor, and I wanna integrate my faith into what it is I do on an everyday basis, I gotta know the question, what is this follow me thing all about? Because it's a little vague. Little vague. Is it just a physical following? Is that all he was getting by? Is that all he wanted to say right then and there? Just come follow me. Or what it really means in the Greek is come here or, or uh, come now. There's a, there is an expedience to it, but he's it, not like heavy handed about it either. They have a choice, right? He's not, not laying a hammer to him. Come hither or uh, come expeditiously. Let's, let's do this. I guess they could have remained motionless. They could have just stood there. They could have went back into the water. I don't know what they were doing. If they could have done anything else but follow him, but that's what he said. He said, come follow me. What was their relational context? Had he said that before? We don't know. We don't know the details of all of that, but we do know he said, come follow me. And what could they have? This is more interesting to me. It's not what Jesus said, but what could have taken place in their head after hearing that invitation? That's really where it gets juicy because what they're probably thinking back then probably isn't all that far than what we think sometimes in the here and now. What could they have been thinking after hearing, uh, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men? Well, you will, where are we going? <laughs> That's a, isn't that a normal response? I feel almost a, a little bit disappointed if someone didn't say, like, where are we going? Somebody's thinking it, whether they said it or not. Where are we going? How far along is it gonna take? What, what kind of terrain? Do you literally mean follow me or follow my example? What are you getting at here? What is, what is the program? Uh, what can we expect? Who will we see? Who will we meet? Where are we gonna go? Um, and for how long are we gonna be gone? Uh, are we gonna be back? I know one guy's gonna wanna check, one of them's gonna wanna check with his wife and mother-in-law because that seems to be a pressing kind of issue you wanna deal with before you just vacate. I don't know about you. That doesn't seem right. It's not like they can call, say, I know I've been gone three months, but he said, come follow me, I'm in the, I'm in the desert. So when are we gonna be back? And, and what exactly are we gonna be doing? Like, these are not outlandish responses, really. And then why are you asking me this? Why are you asking us? Why are you asking us as brothers? What is it about us that you seem to want us to go with you? And... What are we gonna learn anyway? What are we gonna do and what change will take place? What change will take place in us? What change will, are we trying to bring about in society? What's the mission? Because there's not a whole lot of detail here. And, and don't tell me somebody's not thinking it because if they're not, they're irresponsible. Like, uh, don't, aren't you supposed to count the cost before you actually go, go into the endeavor and the, the endeavor or build your vineyard? Like, hey, what, by the way, what's this gonna cost? Is there a per diem? 
Is there an allowance here? What, is there a compensation package? Are there benefits? What, what are we doing here? How do I take care of my family? I would wanna know that, wouldn't you? I know my family would. What, um, are we gonna provide for ourselves? Uh, someone gonna provide for my family? Uh, what, what is it? Is there a tax benefit? Um, health benefits? Is the matching funds on retirement? We don't know, nothing. Um, it seems a little res- irresponsible not to ask, really. I know we can live by faith that God's gonna provide everything, but you, have you noticed that he kind of provides when we actually do something? <laughs> like go to work. And then the question, can we afford to go? Or a better question, uh, can we afford not to go? What is this? You see, this is a question that whether it was literal or not, was asked of you before you ever came into a personal relationship with Christ. There was a lifestyle out there. There was an entity called the church. There was a gospel. There was a Bible. There were people that living this life. And, and somehow or another, directly or indirectly, basically the Lord said, come follow me. And you had to process this. Am I willing to go that direction? I'm gonna go with this church. Do I like these people? Are they crazy? Are they legalist? Are they toxic? Are they crazy? What, you know, what? What is this? Can I afford to do this or not to do it? Am I gonna lose my reputation? Am I gonna lose my family members? Am I gonna lose my friends? What? It was easy for me. I had to turn my back on all my friends and all my playgrounds and all my playmates. It was easy. I didn't have anything to do with the world anymore. I had already lost it all. But people process this question all the time. Come follow me. Well, there's a cost involved. By the way, It could be a really bad deal if you don't realize there's a cost involved. If this is gonna cost you nothing, it's probably worth nothing. Uh, If it's too good to be true, it's probably not true. These boys need to know the answer to these questions that they got going on in their head, if not directly in the moment, soon thereafter because they're gonna make some decisions here, and well that they should. They should have the discernment to really look at this situation and say, is this something I really wanna do? Even though they might be a week, 10 days, 15 days, 30 days into the program, they still have to have their questions answered. Is this guy for real? Who is he? What's his agenda? Am I gonna be embarrassed by this situation? What's the deal? Come follow me. Yeah. Hey, listen, if your Christian life doesn't cost you anything right now, I would say it's a pretty good likelihood you're not living it. It has to cost something. You have to take a stand at some point. Eventually you have to find resistance. You have to find persecution. Eventually, if you totally live out this following thing, you're really gonna take some hits. It's just the way it is. It's not a free lunch. The redemption's free, but none of these guys, none of these guys were immune from resistance, persecution, and martyrdom. None of them. The incarnate God was incarcerated. Christ himself wasn't immune from the resistance. So they looked through the financial cost and then the personal cost. 
Am I gonna be willing to talk about my life with Christ and my devotedness to him, my allegiance to him, or I'm gonna deny him three times at the shadow of the high priest's house around a fire? There's gonna be something going on here. What will others think? Will they understand? Am I gonna be in danger? What are my preconceptions? Come follow me. It's the, it's the simplest question, simplest plea, simplest invitation, but the most complex set of circumstances in and around it. And then come follow, he says, but he says, come follow me. Well, okay, well, who is me? Who is this Jesus? Who are you really? All I know is you're from Nazareth. Who are you really? What are you really all about? Hey, there's no shortage of people who say, come follow me in this world. It's amazing the power some people can have over other people. It is amazing how many people can literally, if not figuratively, drink the Kool-Aid. It is amazing the power we have over one another in cults and false religions and and false teaching. It is astounding what we can subject ourselves. It is astounding how we can be deceived and taken and ripped off. It's astounding how a Christian, as naive as we can be sometimes, think the best of everywhere and, get, and end up getting taken. We are heavily influenced by others. They should be asking the question, who are you that you want me to follow you? You see, a leader, even today, a leader, really worth following, truly worth following, has some qualities about them. A leader today has to handle success better than they handle failure. I tell you, too many Christian leaders enjoy so much, quote, success, notoriety, resources, provision, status, and they can't handle it. They actually can handle failure better than they can handle the success. We need leaders today who are not tarnished by success and know how to handle it, stay under the radar, and not bring too much undue attention to themselves. See, Jesus was that away. We need people whose private, personal reality matches their public persona. A person who's uh, always asked, from, which, from where does this ministry flow? Does it flow out of the heart in a private, personal, intimate relationship with Christ? Or does it flow out of some other agenda? Does the person have a calling or a job, a vocation or an irrevocable calling? And the world's looking at you the same way. Are you ministering to others and living your life out of a river of living water? Or are you posing at times to be someone other than who you actually are? Are you willing to limp in front of others, make known your, your, your weaknesses, your frailty, your failures, your sin, your wrongness? They didn't see that in him either. Are you willing to be misunderstood? You wanna follow somebody who's willing to be misunderstood or who is willing to tell the truth though it may offend you. 
a person who's not going to compromise truth to win favor in a good name in sight of God and man, because you won't. Are you one who will tell it like it is? So they see this Jesus, and they're like, what are we gonna do here? They had to have some backroom back conversations. Come follow me, he says, and I'll make you fishers of men. Maybe they would have asked this question. Well, how do you catch men? I know how to catch fish. We're not experienced in that area, not to my knowledge anyway. We're fairly uneducated. We're blue-collar workers. We stink most of the time. Why us? What's with that? And how are we going to catch men? At once, the scripture says. At once. They reacted at once. Now, was it an impulse buy? Apparently not. They stuck with him. Was it just reaction? Or was there something about his voice? There's something about the, the not a command, not a, not a plea, not, a, not begging. Just come follow me. It's right in the middle there, right at the 50-yard line. They heard it. And what they heard not only was what he said, they heard more than the words, they heard in between the words, there was something that they would find value in themselves to be with him. That they would define themselves by him. There was some inherent trust, at least extended initially, that basically said, all right, let's go. Do you have that sensitivity to his voice when that voice says to do something that seems so out of bounds, so contrary, so outside your calendar for the day that you're gonna go do it? It, This begs all kinds of questions. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Wow, that's a magnetic voice. That's something happening there. But listen, just to follow him now, all of a sudden you gotta even come to this reality. To follow him, I gotta leave something behind. I gotta leave something or someone behind. Something has to go. I can't take it all with me. I just slept one one piece of luggage, carry-on luggage, and one backpack across the world and came back. I had to leave most of what I owned here. They left a lot behind. Elijah burned his plow, you know. You've got to leave something behind to follow him. Something has to stay behind. It can be an attitude, it can be a doubt, it can be a fear, it can be a vice, it can be an addiction, it can be a bad relationship, it can be friends, it can be an inappropriate romance, it can be status, it can be a job, it can be a lot of things. I remember, I remember some, somebody was foolish enough to invite me to be a pastor on staff at a church and I was an insurance agent. And I started out as a youth pastor, and I'm not long in the process, and here it comes. You know how this is now. You continue in education, people. It's time to renew your insurance license. Oh, my gosh. You mean I got to get the book out, I got to study, I got to go back down there, I got to answer the questions. That was one of the most stressful things I had ever done before in my life. I had to pass like four tests in one day just to make $40,000 a year to provide for my family. If I didn't do that, I'd be flipping burgers. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I wasn't very good at it and never done it. Did I let that license go? Is that what I was gonna do? Was following him in a calling something that would precipitate the, the leaving behind of 
the only thing that validated me and defined my level of income at that time, I had to come to grips with the fact that yes, I needed to leave it behind. I needed to burn that plow. You see, when he says, come follow me, he does not have a box truck with him. They travel light. And listen, in a physical sense, they travel light, and they travel light in an emotional sense. You can't follow Christ laden with a lot of baggage. You just can't do it effectively. Eventually, following him means you're gonna leave a lot of stuff on the side of the road. And hopefully bitterness and unforgiveness and anger and vices and sin that so easily entangles us is all incorporated in that. Before you know it, you're walking pretty light. They left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Two brothers of the same mother. You just heard the testimony today. We've become brothers and sisters, but not of the same mother. We've become a family over the years, the family of God. And the family of God treats one another, ideally, in a scriptural manner, to help meet needs, to be compassionate, to serve, to cook meals, to be hospitable, and to intercede, to pray. Well, that's what they're about to get a dose of. Notice, they say, that's not, that's not, um, that's not James, that's Zebedee's boy. Notice that. The, 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 some kid walking down the street, they wouldn't say, that's Connor, they'd say, that's Jeremy's boy. They, they wouldn't say, like, uh, that's Tucker, they'd say, that's Thomas and Lisa's boy. Why? Because the family you came from defined you, and you lived to bring your family honor. And if they never referred to you as so-and-so's boy, like the prodigal returned home, thought he was out, you'd be in shame. That's the, that's the context of what's going on here. Oh, that's James's, Zebedee's boy. I remember I, I lived with a 97-year-old woman for one semester at West Georgia College, the most incredible person, one of the most incredible people I've ever met in my life. And she was trying to make a decision if I could rent her bedroom in the back of that old farmhouse has fallen over. She asked me to read the newspaper to her. She couldn't see it. It sat on the front screen porch of that old farmhouse in Carrollton, Georgia, and she looked at me and she says, tell me about your people. <laughs> tell me about your people. She wanted to know if I came from a family of honor. That's how she defined it. Well, Zebedee was a man of honor, therefore his son must have been too. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets and Jesus called them and immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. Here's the thing in, in the New Testament, these fishermen, some prepare nets. Um, sometimes a net comes undone, there's a hole in it. They retie it, they fix it. They shore it back up. They repair it. They prepare it for the next cast. Some cast nets and some clean nets. Nets get all kind of junk in them. 
And that's the way it is today. I don't know what your field is. I don't know how your spiritual gift is. I don't know your occupation, but if you're a netcaster, you're probably more of an evangelist. If you're a net fixer, you're probably more of a, a one who disciples other people. If you, you clean the nets, you're probably one who, who triages people that are new off the street into the kingdom and you get them cleaned up so they can grow some more. So each of them had a role and they probably had a similar role when they followed him, is my point. And Jesus went out throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So what's the point? They were minding their own business and Jesus Christ walked up beside them and said, come follow me. This side of the cross, we're, we're not necessarily going to get that question or that invite. He doesn't want us to follow him. These guys didn't realize it, but they, he literally wanted them, he, he wanted them to follow him, walk with him, even on water, he wanted them to follow he wanted to follow them into Samaria or into the lives of a leper or into a house of a, of a, with a prostitute at his feet. They, they wanted to, he literally physically took them places to teach them how to live in his absence, physical absence. Jesus doesn't really invite you to follow him. He, he invites you to be a tabernacle in which he dwells. See, if I just follow him, if I just copy him, if I just look at my bracelet and say, what would he do, I'll do it. If I just am nothing more than um, a a ditto machine for Jesus, um, I'll conduct myself well. People will have the illusion that, that it's Christ, but it'll probably more than likely just be me. Put another way, uh, Peter followed him and betrayed him three tri- times. After the re- resurrection and Pentecost, Christ inhabited him and he led 3,000 people to Christ. There was no one to follow anymore. It was a habitation. It was an indwelling. It was an abiding. If you're following him, you're probably gonna end up fallow. And it's confusing because your motivation is right. But if in your own strength, if within your own schedule and agenda, your, your job is to do what Jesus did, you're, you're going to be fallow at some point. Why? Because it's you doing it for him, apart from him, or even behind him. I'd much rather have Christ doing it through us, in us, speaking, preaching, teaching, preparing nets, casting nets, and cleaning nets. They both look noble. They both look right. They both look effective, but one is not. Not long term. You can actually live your entire life doing things what in, in, in mimicking what Jesus would do and you can actually pull it off because we can do most anything we want to do really. You can actually pull it off and it's not really Christ doing it through you. It's you doing it for him three or four steps behind. So how do we deal with this? 
I mean, that's the example, isn't it? Follow me. That's the example before the resurrection. That's the example before the coming of the Spirit that he prayed for. That's the example of the fullness of the Spirit after. Jesus never said, come follow me after that. He goes, let me dwell in you. Let me fill you. Let me baptize you. Let me take over. Let me give you the mind of Christ. Let's do that. You see, people sometimes say you're a halfway decent preacher. They can say you're a great preacher. But in reality, you gotta know what you're really saying. Christ is the preacher. He's the voice. The Spirit is the fruit. I don't wanna follow Christ. I want him to lead, but I don't want to follow him. I want to be partners with him. I want you to sit at your desk and make decisions about timelines and quotas and purchasing and investments, relationship and evangelism. I want you to sit in in your lazy boy chair with your Bible. I, I want to see you in your Bible study on Tuesday morning. I want to see what Christ does when he's working through you. I don't... I don't, I've been around long enough, I no longer see, I have a need for people to do what they need to do for Jesus. I look at the next 20 years of my life and the biggest question I have for myself is, how Gary, with all your experience and all of this and all the accolades and all the comments and all the encouragement, how do you get out of your own way? How do you not get in your, in your way? How do you not, this is not anything more than staying out of Jesus' way of ministering through you. That's all this is. But we still have this come follow me concept. Here's my, my, my understanding of the context in which I live is this. People will come from all over the place and they'll stand and look at mountains and vistas and sunrises and sunsets and rainbows and flowers and wildflowers. And you can do all of that. And you can, you can actually enjoy it because it's exhilarating and it's inspiring and it's restful and it's calming and it's beautiful and it's splendid and it's, it's godly. The, the, the nature and the creation that God made is awesome. But, but that can't be it. You can play golf, you can, you can play, or you get too old to play golf and play pickleball. Or you get too old to play pickleball and play croquet. Or you get, get too old to play croquet and you just play cards. It's, I mean, now I'm beginning to see. It's just a decade difference between our activities. You could do all of that, enjoy yourself, laugh, be a, be a great influence on those around you and your peers. You can, you can look like Jesus doing it. I know Jesus would have a slow backswing. I have no doubt about that. I know we'd have a great follow through. I have no doubt about that. You can look like Jesus in all these activities. <sighs> But is he in you? 
somewhere in this whole deal is this statement. Depart from me, I never knew you. Aren't you the guy that was walking behind me 10 or 20 paces for your whole life? When all I wanted to do is come and fill your heart and your mind and help you make those decisions to be your motivation, your inspiration, to be your conviction. Yeah, we're surrounded by brilliant beauty and there are certain times of the day where I live when the sun is going down and it's one mountain's getting in the way and it's, it's, it's slowly just reflecting off the next hillside and I'm like, oh, this is so beautiful. It's glowing, it's golden, it's awesome. But you do that long enough, you can end up worshiping the sun, moon, and stars instead of the one who put them in place. We can be grateful for where we live and the beauty we have and miss the beauty and the splendor of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. I'll leave you with this. I'm going to describe for you now in English prose out of the book of Colossians who has called, who called those disciples to follow him and who said, stop following me. Don't follow me anymore after he rose from the dead because I have one who wants to inhabit you now. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him, in him all things are created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and vis- invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You can go anywhere in the world today you want to go where there's a church and you'll find a majority of the pastors there that are exhausted. 38% of them want to leave the ministry and 65% of their wives wanted to leave it a long time ago. Why? We have too many people following Christ. We have too many people following Christ trying to get others to follow Christ. What we need is an inhabitation of the spirit of the living God that inhabits one person for the sole purpose of the Spirit of God inhabiting the next and the next and the next and the next. Where we don't follow, he still leads, but he works through us. Gets different results. There's less exhaustion, less confusion, less resentment, less fatigue, less less, um, uh, a lack of satisfaction. What are we doing? Uh, If we don't change the system, we'll never change the behavior. If we don't change the system, 
will continue to get the same results. The body of Christ needs desperately to ask for the infilling of the Spirit of God on a daily basis. And the person that's leading them needs to stay out of their way and let them do what the Spirit of God is calling them to do. A couple weeks ago, I talked to you about a second mile church. The person who makes the decision to go the second mile does so with a reliance upon God, not just an obligation or duty to those who are oppressing us. And when we make that decision to live the spirit-led life, the results are different. The process is, is more efficient. It's wiser, it's clearer. And we don't become fallow ground. We don't become fallow ground. I don't want any area of my life left unsown with the seed of the gospel or the seeds of wisdom or compassion or grace. I, like you, want my entire life to be a well-plowed, undistressed, fertile ground for which the seed of the word comes and takes root in relationships, in decision-making, in finances, in marriage, in parenting. I want to be the most fruitful, next two decades of my life, I want to be the most fruitful field you've ever seen before when God sows and casts his bread like on the waters and it hits my life and it bears fruit. And if I just want to follow him and do on my own what he says to do, I will have wasted not only the next two decades of my life, but I would have disgraced the first three decades of walking and knowing him. You have to reach a point in your life where you finally get this thing figured out and you have to make that decision. It's no longer about me. It's not about me. It's about what he can do through me. It's about him doing the ministry, him raising your kids, him doing what he feels like needs to be done. And the results are different. It takes us different levels of time to come to that conclusion. But I know it's a second mile church. I know it's a second mile thing. You know, a midlife crisis is not such a bad thing. If the crisis is to decide whether or not I'm going to live for Christ or who he's going to live through me, that's a crisis I'll deal with any day. There are counselors in this room right now as we speak. There are experienced business people. There are physicians here today. There are counselors. There are consultants. There are authors of books. In the sound of my voice, there are people that move many high levels of organization. Don't follow Christ. If we all follow Christ, the world's going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. Let him inhabit you. Let him flow out of you. Let him... Let him do whatever he wants to do when he wants to do it and let our response be to his voice. May there be a sensitivity and obedience to his voice. I'll be the hands of Christ, but I don't want him ahead of me, me following him. I don't want to have to figure things out anymore. I don't want to have to labor over every decision I ever make. I want to see Christ in my life come to a fuller, richer, more splendid, more beautiful fullness where it's more difficult to mess it up then decide what to do next. Christ in you, the hope of glory.
sowing the seeds of the gospel. If you want motivation, if you truly want motivation for what to do with your life, don't think about yourself at all. Don't think about your needs at all. Because the real reality is he's gonna meet them. And he's gonna meet your needs. If your vision is to build his kingdom, you just took off 65% of your prayer life. It's no longer necessary. Living week to week isn't even an option. It's not even on his agenda. Not knowing what to do isn't even included. If you're on a mission to build his kingdom, you no longer have to ask him to do things you've been pleading with him to do your whole entire life. You just have to want to build his kingdom. You want some motivation? I've never seen more confused, lonely, angry people in my life. I've never seen more wandering. I've never seen more rebellion in people. I've never seen more confusion on every personal level about who we are, we're supposed to be, what do I do, what is this world all about, and is there a God? If that doesn't motivate you, if that doesn't motivate you, nothing will, because that, my friend, motivated Jesus Christ to the cross. I can't say it any plainer than that. As our musicians come. I reference the incarnate Christ. John 1.14, we have seen, I visualized, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only came from the Father for grace and truth. They saw him, they laughed with him, they talked with him. They made fires together. They hugged each other. It was real to them. The Spirit of God inhabited a human being and they walked with him everywhere. And he was incarcerated in prison. It's ridiculous. Gave up all executive privilege. Gave up everything to allow himself to the lowest common denominator within humanity to feel what it was like to be the lowest among the low, and then later said, what you do unto the least of these, you've done it unto me, because I've been where they are. He became imprisoned. Imprisoned by what? Walls? Shackles? Crown of thorns? Nails? Heavens, no. No. Imprisoned by choice. In Gethsemane. That's where he imprisoned himself. The cup of suffering. The first sinless man said, my will be done. The next sinless man said, thy will be done. And when he did, he built himself a box and stayed in it. Because you and I, deserved the very same prison ourselves. And he represented us, took on our fellowness. 
What's going on in your physical body today? I don't know, but I know that the blood of Christ has power and authority over all sickness and disease. What's going on in your mind today? I have no idea. But I know the authority of the truth of the word of God and the blood of Jesus Christ you'll overcome. Were you broken? I don't know, but I know Jesus holds all things together. Was his body broken? Yes. Why? So we could be whole. And by the way, whole and holy aren't all that far apart. So our communicants come forward. We're going to come to this sacred, meaning mysterious, unusual, uncommon, divine, Meal. With reverence and awe, sobriety. We're going to approach this meal unlike we approach any other meal or ever would even think of doing so. With a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Not gluttony, not feeding the flesh, but building up the spirit. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it. And he broke it and he gave it to them. He said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. He said, this is the cup. So the cup of the new covenant of my blood for the remission of sins. Drink ye all of it. We can't worship a supernatural God and expect natural results. It's contrary to truth. May you, Lord, fill each and every crack and crevice of our being today And would you leak out of us this week into the lives of other people with compassion and care and wisdom, sustaining grace and power and energy, with strength and resolve and persistence, with love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. Would you fill this congregation to the brim that our cup would even runneth over into the lives of those that need life, eternal Life, creativity, insight, ministry, truth, leak out of us. Let us weep for those who are confused, alienated, lonely, distraught, set apart, and graft them into the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. As this song begins, I want to encourage you to come to the appropriate pair of leaders that are holding these elements. Bring whatever needs to be left behind for a week of ministry and leave it here. Leave it here. Go out into the world and be the light of the world as the light of the world ministers through you. Go out and feed the world something as the bread of life inhabits you. Enjoy the irrevocable calling of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And may it be fun, interesting, challenging. May it provoke curiosity, bewilderment, awe. 
This is why you're here. Miss out. In Jesus' name.